My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Good morrow, Eumenidites. This is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater bringing you another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Now, before we get into the show today, I have been meaning to bring something up that gives you a little bit of a look behind the scenes of the show. It's a little on the sad side, but I'd like to share as it means a lot to me. In November 2023, I lost a friend named Steve Baskin. Steve was quite a bit older than I am, so much so that he could have been my parent, but Steve and I really first met when he played my grandfather in a community theater production. And through our interactions, I learned that Steve was pretty much a go-to guy when you needed a good character actor in many different fashions. But Steve was also ultimately reliable. Always pleasant, with a good sense of humor, and might almost always say yes if you asked him to help a production in any way he could. For a living, Steve was a woodworker and restored antiques, but when he wasn't doing that, he could almost always be seen working on another show or behind a drum set for musical orchestras or the several bands he was a part of. And in any case, like I said, Steve passed recently, and it was during his final weeks that I found out that Steve is actually the drummer in the music you hear in the Apocalypse song, the theme song to Euripides' Humanities. So it really pleases me to know that all of you listening have also just gotten a small taste of who Steve was and how he followed his passion, much as I'm doing with this show. Gonna miss you, Steve. Okay, phew. That aside, let's get to today's episode. This is one I've been teasing for the last few episodes since I did the episode about the Seattle Federal Theater Project. I was also recently contacted by the publicist for author Paul Gagliardi, who is a teaching associate professor at Marquette University in Milwaukee. Paul specializes in teaching modern literature, drama, and film studies. Paul recently published a fascinating new book entitled All Play, No Work, in which he dives deep into many of the comic plays presented all across the country by the Federal Theater Project, and I'll let him describe the scope of the book in the episode. But I have a link in the show notes where you can get the book, but you should also be able to get it just about anywhere you get books. In any case, I get a treat again in which Paul brought the story to me, and I didn't look ahead and study up. I let him surprise me with these things. Paul goes over a ton of plays in his book, but for this episode, he details a couple of them that should whet the appetite to investigate further. So, without further ado, here is today's episode, All Play, No Work, The Comic Plays of the Federal Theater Project. A lot of, a lot of, 
So, Paul. Yes. As we're recording this, the holidays are in full swing. As I was thinking about it and related to theater, there are so many holiday shows out there. Mm -hmm. Like, I've been in a number of them. I've seen a number of them. But, Paul, I want to ask you, do you have, like, a favorite theater holiday memory? Wow. That's a good question. I don't know if this is exactly a holiday memory, but I okay. think it is. When <laughs> I was 22 or 23, uh, I realized one of the ways I could see really good theater was to volunteer to be an usher. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so I was ushering at the Shakespeare Theater at the Landsberg in, in D.C. And if I have the timing right, they were doing a production of Romeo and Juliet where the monk was being played by uh, the butler from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And that's, <laughs> I can't remember his name. <laughs> yes, Briar Lawrence. Yes, thank you, thank you. I should have looked it up before. You caught me off. <laughs> and that's all I remember is just like, he's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Dude, it's him. It's him, it's really he's him. here. <laughs> And I think the year before they had Lieutenant Worf from Star Trek Next Generation as. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, uh, not Antigone. Um, who's the guy that pokes his eyes? Poke out? the eyes. <laughs> pokes the eyes. Oedipus? Oedipus. <laughs> Oedipus. <laughs> My listeners, Paul was doing these, these motions that were like Loki horns coming down from the, like poking him in the eye and went, poke in. Uh, oh, that was. I'm glad that's how you remembered it instead of, you know, the one who, you know, slept with his mother and didn't really realize it. It's the eye poke. It's the eye poke for me. That should, that should be a thing. Yeah, like theater people, like we walk around, you know, how like Harley riders do that thing where they like give each other a little salute as they pass. We should just do like eye pokes to everybody as we pass them. <laughs> that's it. Oh, I get you. Mm -hmm. I get you. Mm -hmm. Paul, I was thinking about it. Mine... That just like I went, geez, I don't know if I ever ha I have like a really funny memory, but then I do. And it's kind of problematic and just fun to talk about in a theater history podcast and just see how far we've come. Mm -hmm. One of my very first shows that I got into in Seattle was a play called Greetings. It was about a guy living in, I want to say, New York, and he got engaged and he's bringing his fiance home for the first time to meet his family. Mm -hmm. And his family, you know, mom and dad. You know, uh, middle age, their dad's kind of gruff. Mom's really, really sweet. But there's just some kind of underlying family tension, mm -hmm. as there tends to be sometimes. Sure. But also in the household was my character's older brother who had developmental issues or mental mental handicap. Mm -hmm. And so basically he he couldn't live on his own, so he had to live at home. Very, very sweet guy. Loved his trains. You know, he has a train set running around the Christmas tree, and that's what he likes to do when everybody else is having adult talk. This is played by somebody who is not that. Okay. okay. Did not get dealt those cards at birth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, we're looking at it like 20 years ago. People were like, yeah, we do that all the time. But and now we're like, oh, that's really difficult. Uh -huh. On the other hand, this brother has seizures. It's written in the script. And in the middle of act one, he has one of these ones really, really bad and falls behind the couch. Mm -hmm. And everybody is like, oh, what's going to happen? And a couple moments later, he stands up and he's completely erudite and eloquent. And 
And his first word is greetings. He has been overtaken or possessed by some extraterrestrial, and he's here to help the family resolve their issues. <laughs> I I have so many questions, and <laughs> so so like he's possessed by an alien entity or an alien. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then at the end of the playing, you know the the tensions kind of get resolved, and the being goes back, and he just becomes the the older brother who lives at home again. I have to see this play. I I, I need to <laughs> see. That's one of those ones that you're like, I, I want to do an episode on like representation mm -hmm. and who, who can play what I want to do that so bad just to go, okay, where are we right now? Let's dip our toe in the pool and see, mm -hmm. see what we can do, what we shouldn't right. do, who can play what parts, but Hey, that's not what we're here to talk. No, about. no, no. So, Paul, I was contacted by your publicist. Mm -hmm. You have this book that just came out. Yes, I do. It is called All Play, No Work, American Work Ideals and the Comic Plays of the Federal Theater Project from Temple University Press, I believe $29.95 uh, on the website. Uh, I've seen different prices at various other other sites. Right, but, right. You know. And you can get it from a lot of different book sites. But, yeah. but that's the that's the title. Uh, what is it again? I'll Play No Work. I'll Play No Work. I'll Play No Work, yeah. And and this is this is what I've been teasing my audience with for the last few episodes of we're going to get more stuff about the Federal Theater Project because it was a very interesting time. And really, I didn't hit on it in my Spirochete episode, but as far as I understand, this is like the closest – that we got in America to creating a national federally funded theater. We have, we got it for four years and that was it. Yeah. And oh. it's, uh, we haven't been close since. And I don't no. know what's going to happen anytime soon, if ever. And that's what they tried. I mean, like that was the, that was the emphasis or like that was the gate, the, mm -hmm. the goal. And I, you know, Hallie Flanagan, who is the director of the federal theater project, when she was working with Harry Hopkins, director of the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, that was their vision, right? To have a national theater to be as diverse as they could for the 1930s and all the problematic elements to go with that because it was the 1930s. <laughs> and But that's also like kind of what led, in some ways, the FTP to its downfall, right? It wasn't ever fully centralized when they tried to make it centralized in terms of play selection in terms of organization, it was trying to do everything and nothing all at the same time, I think is the easiest way to think. Right. Of it. And there were a lot of course corrections over the course of four years. And I think at the end, there's Hallie Flanagan was starting to realize that, okay, this was, this was going to get killed in the 1940 budget. It did. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, she starts to pause it, like what I would do differently and sort of like hmm. modeling it more on, a more centralized but inclusive experience, and, and there were a lot of missteps. I think she realized along the, along the way. Right. But I think it's hard. You have audiences that want like old time fare, and you have people that want very progressive avant garde plays, and you want people that want to laugh, and you want people that want musicals. And how do you coalesce all that? That's hard. That's yeah, really, really hard. I'm, I just, within the last few months, became the vice president of our community theater board here. And I'm on the play selection committee. And, you know, we have to look at th stuff that has come before and where we are in a lot of different 
aspects because I have people coming to me all the time. They're like, I have this edgy, bold play that won a lot of awards and and I think really would speak to people here. And I go, I think that's a great idea. Who's going to buy a ticket for that in this current economy where people who would go see that don't have expendable income? Uh, it, it's it's so tough. Like, I don't want to squash it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you go, I don't want you to be let down that nobody came to see it. Right. And that was the same problem with the FTP, right? Like, like Hallie Flanagan, you know, she wanted that, like, the living newspapers, as you talked about with um, Spirochete. Spirochete. I was not even close. <laughs> We had talked about this. Like, I can never pronounce that word. And, you know, it, it it's never going to happen. Well, when I first heard about it, it was on another podcast and they pronounced it Spirochette. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I listened to a podcast recently where they were talking about the Battle of Agincourt and he kept pronouncing Agincourt. <laughs> and <laughs> like, no, no, it's. <laughs> mm. But no, like, yeah, that's the issue. Like, do you want to do a play about syphilis in in <laughs> Seattle and yeah people in that case went to go see it but is it going to play in Peoria right probably not right and <laughs> and that's the tension that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was like you know like the plays that we know about from the federal theater project you know Orson Welles and his all black cast of Macbeth oh. and Harlem which is a great production Incidentally, the only video we have of a federal theater project production is of. of oh, that. really? Yes. Oh, wow. You know, the, the 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 national all at the same time production of Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, the living newspaper plays like and these controversies over the cradle will rock and all those things. But those are a type of theater that a lot of people didn't really want in the United States. And 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 I don't mean that in a condescending way, but they were looking for entertainment. Well, I mean, I, I kind of talked about it on my Spirochete episode. I'm like, you're in the Great Depression. So life outside the theater is awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just put myself in the position of, okay, I, I can only wear one shoe because the other one finally wore out. I had to sell the leather so my kids could have bread. I have 10 extra cents. I'm going to go to the theater and learn about how terrible syphilis is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's rampant and it's in your community. Yes. Uh, rather than show me a husband and wife getting in an argument and then throwing pots at each other. And I'll laugh because I want some laughs. I, and people wanted laughs, right? So that's where that's where you come in. That's where I come with, in. With your, your book, uh, All Work, No Play, about comic plays of the Federal Theater Project. So... My listeners, I'm getting a rare treat today in that I have talked to Paul already. He has gotten a good roundup of these plays for us, and he's going to tell us a few of these. But this isn't the whole menu, is it? No, this this is an appetizer. Yeah, you'd have to get the book to get all of these. So I'm going to encourage you, uh, you know, keep us running, but go ahead and go out and order your copy right now yeah. so you can get the rest of these. Please, I have gambling debts, and they're going to break my thumbs. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Talk about the 1930s. Hey, um, this guy over here. <laughs> you took the Dodgers in five? No, sir. <laughs> All right. So, Paul, you've got some for me. Uh, I am so excited to hear about comic plays from the Federal Theater Project. All right. So there are a lot of comic plays in the Federal Theater Project. And, and mm-hmm. what I did was I focused on the sort of these plays that 
kind of what Aaron was just saying. Like, you know, audiences wanted to go to the theater to be entertained, right? Uh, I don't want to hear about how everyone has syphilis. I don't want to hear about <laughs> how everyone's starving in um, the rural areas. I don't want to hear about how I need electricity in the Tennessee Valley, right? I want to see people throwing pies at each other and making quips, right? Um, And traditionally, and I remember one of the first like little Genesis moments for me was all the way back in high school. And my teacher in 11th grade American history said, it was kind of dismissive because I was really interested in film and theater and sports, and I, I had a really hard time processing all the, all those things fit together. <laughs> but but I remember like really loving movies of the '30s, and she said something like, "You know, musicals and comedies of the era were just like they were frivolous fare." You know, oh, they, they were have... so fluff. They were fluff. so fluff. So if fluff. you talk about like Ziegfeld Follies, it's just like how long were the girls' legs, and did the skirts cover them completely? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's. Yeah, yes. and, you know, that's yeah. kind of what you're talking about. Right, exactly. And so I, I kind of grew up with that. And then, long story short, I found these plays produced by the Federal Theater Project. They were comedies, and I started to realize they're all about work. And that's weird. <laughs> that's very weird to me because you think <laughs> people are going to go to the theater and see pie fights. That's what they want. Yeah. But then, like, the plays <laughs> about work are actually, like, really interesting takes on working and the working experience and again the new deal we think of the new deal when you think of the new deal we think of roosevelt we think of people working in fields we think of post offices being built you know everybody getting Mm -hmm. work right 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 i think in his first inaugural address roosevelt says i can't do a roosevelt impression i'm not gonna try (laughs) (laughs) that's okay it's gonna sound like this (laughs) but he says like the operative word is work Right, that's what the American people want. What I discovered is there are a bunch of plays produced by a federal agency providing work for theater workers, which kind of suggests working is for chumps. That like the <laughs> traditional sense of work that we know, right, working hard, putting your nose to the grindstone, doesn't really work, pun intended. <laughs> so... If you buy the book, you're going to hear read about things like, you know, comedies of speculation where people realize people that, you know, and get involved in real estate speculation find success. Why can't I do something similar? People that are like really working in, you know, middle class norms of I got to buy everything and have the great house and, you know, you know, women have to stay at home and you'll have plays where women are like, no, that's not how this is not how it's going to work. Okay. Um, we're getting a, a little Lysistrata here. All right. We're, we're getting a little Lysistrata. Yeah. <laughs> I got to do an episode on Lysistrata. Oh, it's such oh a great god. play. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. So I have, I have two. I thought wait, I could, you know, uh, wet the appetites of everybody. Excellent. So I have a question for you. Okay. When you think of like a backstage comedy or a backstage musical, like what, what do you, what are you expecting? Like if you see a play is going to be a backstage comedy. What pops into your head, a backstage musical? Well, the two I'm thinking of right away, I have close personal involvement with. The first one would be Noises Off, because I just did that this spring. I was Lloyd, the director. And when I think of that, I think you're going to see the nuts and the bolts. You're going to see the drama backstage between the actors. You're going to see 
the hectic nature of getting the right props and making sure that the, you know, the costumes are on correctly. And, and if we don't get it right, we have to do something. We have to pull something off and see that. The other one is 42nd street. Yes. Amazing musical based on a 1930s uh, movie. Mm-hmm. That one I, I really enjoy because uh, one, it's another, it, it was like a pivotal piece of my college career and kind of set me in a, completely new trajectory but that one is set in the depression and it's about a group of theater artists that if this play doesn't work they're all on the street they're going to the bread line mm-hmm. but you know i mean this is where we hear the songs lullaby of broadway and shuffle off the buffalo and and they're cute fun tunes and you see people in crazy situations that the story doesn't entirely tied together you know the show that's on the stage the play within the play mm-hmm. but they're fun they're cute it's 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 a guy on a train who's on his honeymoon and his uh beautiful sexy wife is going off to change into her slinky lingerie and mm-hmm. is somehow he can't get the pillows to fluff right or something like that. you know it's just <laughs> it's, it's a goofy scenario and people are like ah that was that was a good time and oh, this this is my favorite one. There's that whole song called Dames, where the yes. first half of it is handsome, dashing dudes in tuxedos with white bow ties and top hats and canes, and they do a glorious tap number. And the second half of it, all these gorgeous women come out wearing beautiful, luxurious gowns in every color in the rainbow. And what does the song mean? Nothing. It's fun to look at pretty people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, for me, my my favorites, my favorites still are like the Gold Diggers series, uh, like Gold Diggers of oh, 30 yeah. and thirty five and thirty seven, and I think there's forty two. Um, but there's not really a. I mean, the plot is like a bunch of people are putting on a show, right? And yeah, and the way we can kind of get around like that classic contemptible line of why I don't like musicals, right? Is well, I don't buy people, <laughs> I don't buy people just breaking in the song. And of course the backstage musical is like a way to get around that because you have like the performance within the performance. But anyway, so they're very popular in the 20s and 30s in part because it's a very easy way for to like balance the narrative, right? Like you don't have to have like, you, you can, you don't have to spend too much disbelief because you can have like the, the numbers that don't really connect to the rest of the narrative. And, but also I think what's important and why I'm, I'm transitioning to the federal theater project is there are a bunch mm-hmm. of backstage comedies that aren't musicals, but they borrow the same tropes. Like a bunch of people are getting together, a bunch of actors, they're, they've got to put on a show. And if they don't, they're going to be in the breadline, right? Uh, yeah. 42nd street. And also, I think because they're done by the Federal Theater Project, there's an added importance of what we're doing is important. Like, theater matters. And if you don't support us, we're going to be on the breadline, right? If you don't support the Federal Theater Project, right, which is, again, like to give actors and directors and producers and set designers work, we're going to be in trouble. And the play I'm going to talk about uh, is one of my is one of my favorites uh, is a play called a moral entertainment, which no one has heard of. And I will say this too: I don't <laughs> think being a federal theater project hipster. Like I didn't just pick the plays that like well, quote <laughs> heard of 
well as Macbeth. I'm really into mm. a play that bombed in Omaha in 1937, right? Yeah, it wouldn't have bombed if it was somewhere else, but you know. Yeah, like I found it. I I, I have two pages from the playbill. <laughs> Nobody else does. Right. You, you have to hear like there. Uh, they went commercial uh, after after 39. <laughs> It's like a moral entertainment by Richard Maybaum. Richard Maybaum is a really interesting dude. Okay. He is best known. I pulled up his IMDB page uh, just now. Uh, if you want to, you can follow along if you're listening. But he is best known for basically creating the James Bond franchise. What? Yes. Uh, he didn't write the he didn't write the original stories, but he left doing theater in the 1940s. He served in World War II comes back and like a lot of theater producers and directors starts working in Hollywood. And he has a really bizarre range of screenplays that he writes. He writes a adaptation of the great Gatsby. He writes a bunch of like, you know, thriller cop dramas <laughs> in the 1950s. Oh my God. That's a range. Yeah. And long story short, he moves to, he gets somehow he meets the, the initial producers for the, the first or second James Bond movie. And they had mm-hmm. admired his work writing these adventure films in the 50s. And basically, he is involved in the first, I want to say, 13 James Bond movies or something like that. Whoa. Uh, some of the most famous <laughs> ones, either, either screenwriter or producer. Oh, wow. Yeah. But he got his start. Uh, he was born in New York. He went to the University of Iowa. He worked with uh, Edward Maybe, I think, was uh, working at the University of Iowa then. And so he... Got to start in theater. He writes these kind of very social realist, you know, 1930s, everything sucks kind of narratives. And then he writes this play called Mortal Entertainment. I don't know why this play got selected by the Federal Theater Project. Maybaum himself never really talked about it, as far as I can tell, when he did interviews later in life. Surprise, surprise, people didn't want to hear about the Federal Theater Project. They wanted to hear about James Bond. (laughs) Totally understandable. Right. Totally understandable. Now, this incredibly popular super spy aside, you're a hell of a playwright. Yes, you know? yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 1974's hipsters were like, yeah, it's, Octopussy is cool, but did you ever do... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so Immoral Entertainment is set in 1690 in this tiny town in Massachusetts called Mondi. It is run by now. I'm going to butcher a lot of the names here, but like that's just something I do. Eh. Um, eh. A guy named Per. There's some great names in this play. Peregrine Poland, <laughs> who is like the minister, doctor, magistrate of the town, and thinks most stereotypical Puritan that you can think of. Right? He is okay. He's obsessed with witches. I was going to say, we're in 1690s Massachusetts. Um, You know, it's not a barbecue that you smell in the air. No, it's not. (laughs) Oh, that that went dark really quickly. And (laughs) I do that. That's fine. That's fine. I do the same thing. (laughs) So Peregrine Pulpit. Peregrine Pulpit. And yeah, the name sounds like Pulpit. Pulpit. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Not exactly subtle. He has a nephew named Dio Day. Oh, there we go again. Dio Day, God Day. Wow. Yeah. What were you saying about subtle? Not exactly subtle. And they find out that a group of players is going to produce, they're going to stage Romeo and Juliet at a barn outside of town. Can't happen. Can't happen. Cannot happen. No, 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 no. 
Now, wait a minute. This guy also wrote Footloose, right? He, he did. <laughs> he did. There's a, yeah, there's a good joke in there. I can't think of one. It's a version of Footloose where uh, Footloose, never mind. I, I don't know. I was, yeah, okay. I, I was going to do a James Bond <laughs> intersection there. <laughs> Let's see, wait, maybe I can do it. Uh, you know, John Lithgow is sitting there looking at Kevin Bacon, stroking his cat and going, oh, so you're going to teach them how to dance. There we go. I got it. Well done. Well done. <laughs> okay, so Romeo and Juliet's going to be staged at this yes. barn. Puritans go, not on my life. Not on much. So the, the players love this guy named Tony Ashton. He has a daughter named Rosalinda, who is like the star of the theater troupe. When I was writing my book, actually, every time I typed in Rosalinda, it autocorrected to Rosalind. So, I was going to say, you're talking about Romeo and Juliet. It's right there. Yeah. So I it, that was that made the editing process a living hell because I was like, <laughs> it wasn't showing up on autocorrect or anything like that. So, so the players are in a miserable state. They're tired. They're hungry. They had to eat their horse somewhere between Worcester and Hartford or Ooh. something along those lines. Like they're not. That's a long walk. And they're in Puritan, Massachusetts, right? Not exactly. <laughs> not, ex not exactly uh, Broadway, as it were. Or friendly. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they stage Romeo and Juliet. The minister finds out. He arrests everybody. Uh, Rosalinda. Uh -huh catches the eye of Deodate, the nephew. Long story short, they're going to like run off together, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Star-crossed yeah. lovers, yada, yada. So here's what's interesting about a moral entertainment. So all the the actors are put into the stocks or the, the jail of the town. They become celebrities in the town because people haven't really seen outsiders. They haven't seen actors and they have a trial. <laughs> It's the mystique of the unknown. Yes. It's, yes. Oh, it's the celebrity of the the foreign. Oh, I love it. Yes. So Pilput puts the actors on trial. It's a totally rigged, uh, totally rigged election. Sorry. Totally rigged uh, proceeding. Yes, proceeding. Thank you. But Rosalinda has this very eloquent defense of theater. She says, like, what we did, we are not devils. We brought joy to your lives, right? We, we made you laugh. We made you sing. And of course, the townspeople are like, they start singing along with her and it drives the minister mad. And so what he does is he just finds them all guilty. The dean of the Commonwealth is like a moderate Puritan. He comes into town. He says, listen, we're not going to execute you. If you give up acting, we will let you live in the town. And that's fine. <laughs> and what's interesting is most of the actors are like, yeah, acting sucks. I hate it. It's hard work. <laughs> There's there's one character who they promise he could open a tailor shop and he's like, I'm living the dream. There's a, a line here I'm cleaning up because it's problematic. But one character says, I'd rather fight Indians than do Romeo and Juliet one more time. So they're all leaving because like they're like, it's a job. It's like stable food, right? And Rosalinda right. is terrified at this. She's like, you're leaving what we we're, we should be doing. And hilarity ensues. And what ends up happening is yep. they trick the minister into confessing his love for Rosalinda. He admits he Ooh. has, uh, what's the uh, Jim Baker phrase? I have sin in my heart kind of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Swagger crying Jimmy Swagger, on TV. Yes, yes, yes. I have sinned. <laughs> <Yeah>. No kidding. <laughs> so the, the 
Puritans escape, uh, Rosalinda and the nephew elope. They run to Boston. Uh, Everybody's happy. And then the minister just ends up accusing basically everybody of being witches. Why not? Yeah. Why not? They convinced him he was wrong. I can't be wrong. You all have to burn. Okay. We're all getting hung. Oh, my God. Oh, what a fascinating... Like, I'm listening to that, and I'm like, now there's somebody who studied his his playwriting and his theater history Mm -hmm. because not only are you getting Shakespeare parallels from Romeo and Juliet to these other two characters, Rosalinda, which is funny because, uh, you know, she's just a device to Mm -hmm. Romeo in Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. But so, uh, you know, I did that episode on Shakespeare adapted on Hamlet. And we talk about like, you know, people have developed entire TV series or movies on Rosalind. And you're like, why? There's nothing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, right? They're, they're two yes. characters, but that's, to me, one of the, well, that might be an exception. Like, that's one of the best plays mm-hmm. ever written, but. Yeah, yeah, super good play, super good play. But I'm also hearing, there was a thing. I've done a few episodes where I've talked about Renaissance plays where women have this incredibly powerful like speech or moment. And at the time it was kind of designed to be like, huh, women can be interesting too. When you're like, that was a whole time when your, your queen staved off being married and wanted to remain, you know, just the queen and totally kicked ass. Mm -hmm. Like it, but I'm hearing Portia from uh, merchant of Venice. Yes. Where, you know, pound of flesh, okay, but drop no blood, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just this incredibly eloquent thing that, and, and she's this huge role. I love that. But it's also a guy that understood people want to see a chase scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things about comedies of this era is that people think of them as like frivolous and disposable, right? And they, the write-ups yeah. of the play, you know, it it it, it premieres outside Philly, in New York, in Hartford, uh, one other city, and it appears in Boston. And of course, the Boston press, which was very conservative that time, absolutely mm. hated it. Oh, I bet. Oh, you're you're mocking our Puritan forefathers, and you have no idea what Puritan life was like. And who is this Richard Maybaum to write this play? Oh, that's an interesting spin. Like I thought they might have been more like apologists. <laughs> like, oh no, hey, they... please don't bring don't bring up those dark corners of our of our closet. Ooh, no, they're, they're like, like we fully how, embrace. That... How dare you, sir? How dare you? We burn those people with <laughs> conviction. Uh, but yeah, okay. So it premiered in all these different places, but uh, Boston throttled it, sounds like. But other than that, what else did you find? I mean, mostly it's just, uh, like, going back to the, that's why I brought that the chase scene, right? Like, I, I yeah. imagine like they ran off, but like it, it leads to like the comedy of like romance, right? Everyone comes together at the end and everybody's happy and right yeah there you go okay i mean except for the reverend who just then accuses everybody being witches but we can close the curtain on him yeah like literally (laughs) like tearing his hair out that's awesome (laughs) they're all witches but i have no (laughs) idea why he wrote the play right like again like as i was saying he never really he mentioned very briefly and what i could find right that he worked for the Federal Theater Project, but no mention of this play. I, I don't know it's ever been revived at any point. 
And what I think is interesting is one, we have actors who are like acting sucks. I don't like it, right? It is terrible. It's hard work. <laughs> right. But, but also defending acting, like acting on purpose here. Yes. And in the guise of under the auspices of being done by the Federal Theater Project, right? It's it basically is arguing, like, look at how bad the acting life is. It's not the luxurious stuff you would see in like a Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire musical. And the culture of celebrity was really starting to become a thing at that time. I just turned it on again last night. The Aviator, Leonardo mm-hmm. DiCaprio mm-hmm. and The Aviator. And, you know, you have him parading these amazing starlets. And, and those pictures are still seen in the papers and they're they're still seen in reels and movie houses and you're just like, wow, what an, what an amazing thing it would be to be an actor. But I can't even tell you how many people told me, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there were still just those people who were like, no, I think I think you can do it. And I, I'm, I'm reading Jenna Fisher's book on on acting in the real world, mm-hmm. you know, Jenna, uh, Pam from The Office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she is straight up bare bones, bare knuckles, like. This is what it's going to be like. It's going to take years. Yeah. It is literally going to take years. And there is going to be a number of, there are going to be a number of struggles that you're going to have to go through that will test ultimately your willingness to do this. So I, I think it's funny to hit kind of on that perspective that yes, it is a really difficult thing to become a well-known actor. Mm -hmm or to get consistent work in acting to the point where if these guys are faced with, well, we're going to kill you or you quit acting and you can open a a flower shop. Yep. Doing that. I am doing that. 100%. I will do that. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm eating now. This is fantastic. I love it. Uh, I think Jenna refers to her first few years. Um, She, she invented something called actor pizza. And it was slice of bread, a ketchup packet that you would get at, you know, a buffet or something that you could just walk in and, and steal a handful and walk out. Mm-hmm. And then a slice of uh, Velveeta cheese on it. And you put it in the microwave for a minute. Actor pizza. Actor pizza. That works. <laughs> there have been a few books in my life that have made an imprint. This is going to sound like it's coming out of left field, but Leslie, yeah. Leslie Nielsen's autobiography, uh, which. Oh, man. Which. He has a bunch of like, it's just joke after joke after joke after joke. One of them is like, I lived on a ketchup sandwiches. Uh, And, (laughs) and the, the, but the joke is uh, he eats, he puts ketchup in between bread and he chews it. And he's like, it needs more ketchup. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, yeah, I, uh, that's so great though. I mean, it's playing on that trope. But behind the scenes, everybody is tongue in cheek going, but you guys are getting paid Mm -hmm. by the Federal Theater Project Mm -hmm. to do this show for us. I mean, I love that. I love that when there's always self-deprecation in some of those entertainment things where they're like, we know what we are. We know. And that's why (laughs) that's one of the reasons I love that play. Right. Oh, that's so great. It's very meta. Moral entertainment. But I will say, too, like. What's interesting, and I think he has, Maybaum has some foresight, is also the thing about the Federal Theater Project is is constantly under attack politically. 
it is, you know, like people view it as a frivolous thing. Right. Right. We don't need this. We don't need the arts. We don't need the arts to be supported. I know. I know. And there are other art projects done in the federal government. Like people can see a mural. People can see a book. Right. They can. That's more physical. And that's, they have an easier time selling themselves to the populace. Acting has always had that been in that weird space where people realize it's it's work, but at the same time they're like, well, that's not work, right? So having <laughs> having characters be Puritans who were traditionally very anti-theatrical, but also like they can't be convinced in some cases of the benefits of theater, right? They see it as right. something is going to poison the minds, right, of the community. Right. And for a lot of actors in the FTP, you know, actors, theater workers, professors, we tend to be kind of on the left politically. And mm -hmm. and what you start to see is like those those accusations of because of serious plays, right? That there's a there's a communist subversion uh taking place uh in the federal yeah. project. Yeah. And yeah. even in even in things that they weren't necessarily communistic. Now there are some plays that are pretty ardent leftist productions. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they're not even hiding it. No. But what people start to see is they start to see like communism and leftism and radicalism and things that aren't necessarily communist or radical. And I think the play takes on like a weird, serious undertone, right? And a kind of a mm, warning mm -hmm. of we have to be careful here. Like, what are we putting on here? Because anybody could turn into a Puritan, right? At any point. Ah. So should we be staging, you know, a play that outwardly advocates for leftist revolution? Or should we yeah. play, or should we stage a play that's about pie throwing? Right. What, where, right. how do you balance that? And I think, and I think that plays a really good example of this sort of tension. Wow. That exists. Yeah. Yeah, really, really. Because, yeah, as I was doing that episode on Spirochete, so many accusations of socialism mm -hmm. and so many accusations. Because, you know, as you've done your research, it sounded like a lot of the plays were like, we're going to take a problem and we're going to suggest a solution that is a lot more left-leaning. Not necessarily like we're just kind of showing the problem. You all go out and figure it out. I mean, it is crossing that line into, uh, what's the word, you know, kind of being a little over teachy, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, very uh, pedantic yes. is what I was thinking yeah. of, you know, at the same time, like that's not entirely what Horace said in ancient Rome. He said, it's here to educate and entertain. And you have to do that both simultaneously. Yeah. Now, sometimes plays will be more entertaining than they are educational. And sometimes plays will be more educational than they are entertaining. Once you get a little too far on either extreme, it just gets silly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
So, Eumenidites, what do you think? Any theater makers out there want to put that play in their season? You might be surprised. It could be just the satire your community needs to ponder and laugh at the effect that theater has on a populace. Although, Paul has another one coming up that maybe you'd like to consider as well. But before we get to the second half, I'll encourage you to order your copy of Paul's book, All Play No Work, wherever you get your books. I have a link in the show notes. Also, feel free to connect to the show on social media. You can find Trident Theater on Facebook and Instagram, or you can find Euripides Humanities on Instagram as well. Love to connect. But let's get back to Paul Gagliardi and the conclusion of All Play No Work, the comic plays of the Federal Theater Project. So we got through a, a moral entertainment. Mm-hmm. You said you got another one. I got another one. All right. All right. So it's called A Milky Way, written by <laughs> Lynn Root and Harry Clark. Again, another two <laughs> names I had to constantly spell check. Wait a minute. Say those again. Lynn Root and Harry Clark. Lynn Root and Harry Clark. <laughs> yep. These were these were real people. That's a bad alien name on Star Trek or something. <laughs> <laughs> I represent the Clorks. Clork. <laughs> yeah. So milk, the Milky or not Milky Way. Yeah. So before we get to that, I have a question. Uh-huh. I have a question. Okay. I have a question for you. When you think of the word con artist, uh-huh. what what springs to mind? What do you associate with confident schemes or con men, women, con artists? Well, I think of a few things like. You know, our concept of con artist mostly comes from popular media. Mm-hmm. You know, a very, I would say very few of us have actually been victim of a confidence artist. But when you think about the term, you think about somebody who has become so convincing. Mm. You do not see any ill intent or malice of forethought in their actions whatsoever. So much so that... The victim gives up trust, mm-hmm. uh, probably the most important commodity, but obviously there's probably other things, you know, money or resources that a person is able to obtain through means of just being witty. Yeah. And I think the artist is weird, right? Like just as just as an archetype, as a trope, it's a, in some ways a very American infatuation, right? You think of our literature, <laughs> our films, right? Like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, right? Are mm-hmm. they, you know, they swindle people to getting getting them to do what they want through flattery, through you're selling something to somebody, right? Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of I, I'm thinking of Pirelli from Sweeney Todd. Yes, you know yes. Pirelli's magical elixir makes mm-hmm. your hair grow, and mm-hmm. then you find out he's not Italian; he's actually Irish. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I'm Italian. <laughs> the name would suggest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Mediterranean for sure. Like I'm sweating olive oil. <laughs> Where was like Connors? So, so Connors, yeah. yeah. But we we tend to like think of like the nefarious con, like Ponzi schemes and people on the street doing three card Monty and elixirs, right, as we were just talking about. Snake oil. Yeah, snake oil or. Hello, this is your bank. You've been, you, uh, someone has logged into your account. Uh, please give me mm-hmm. your PIN number, right? Um, Hold on, I'm just getting an email. Oh, it's a Nigerian prince who oh, needs see, my there help. you go. That guy's good. <laughs> He's good. Okay. But we're kind of inundated with them, right? And so it's like this weird vacillation between, like, we, we, can, we have contempt for them, but we also kind of admire them at some points, right? Depends on right. being swindled, right? But I think 
to me, it's the idea of selling, you're selling an idea to somebody, right? You're selling faith. You're selling the confidence, the trust, right? I don't think she'll listen to this, but my mother, right? Um, it's been a thing in our family for a while, but my mom goes and visits a psychic. Okay. And I say to her, mom, I want you to be careful about this because, and I explained to her the idea of a hot reading versus a cold reading. And this is a skill that someone, people have been doing for, for millennia. But like for her, it doesn't matter. It's like the, what she's buying is the idea like she can like find peace, right? With right. people that right. have died. And, right. and there it goes, like, like I know there's an element of the swindle there, but also like the idea of, mm-hmm. I love the idea that's being sold to me. What was that guy's name? He was on TV like 20 years ago. John, Jonathan Edward, John Edward. Yes. Yes. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. And he's, he claimed to be able to be in connection with spirits, but it's such a, a well-crafted formula where, you know, you have a captive audience, mm-hmm. you know, you have audience people who are there who are desperate. They want to talk to their loved one and he'll come out and he'll go, I'm sensing, I'm sensing something. I'm sensing somebody just lost somebody. And there will be 50 people there who are like, oh, I did. Yeah, yeah. And I'm feeling uh, a first name starts with uh, J. Is it J? And then 10 people. Yes, yes, me. Mm-hmm. me. Okay, is it a, 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 a John? No. Okay, all right, it's not you. Uh, you know, yes. And it's such a well-crafted mm-hmm. formula where it's like you just are getting the person to buy into your stuff enough. And if they finally get to it, they're like, he says he loves you and he misses you. And that person just breaks down mm-hmm. crying. Like, that's what he mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Like, but, it, but it's like, it's selling, it's selling that faith, right? Like, right, you know, like, right. like if, you know, I've done this with, with colleagues where I'm like, we go to a bar and I'm like, okay, I'll show you like, that person <laughs> over there is 40. And, I, and then you go through it and you're like, okay, I, I just, I'm hitting the odds. Right. But we, right we were receptive to that and yeah if you ask con artists right, you read what con artists say about what they do they'll say number one why is it always i'm the bad guy right if i'm selling <laughs> like if i'm trying to convince somebody to buy stock right in something that doesn't exist because there'll be a hundred percent return on it with no legal interference Right. That's the greed of that person. I'm just playing off their greed. Like, how come no one condemns what that person wants? Right. Right. Or they'll say, hey, how is what I'm doing any different than what a business does? Right. <laughs> you know, and, and you're, you sit there and you're like, got a point there. Right. Yeah. So what I discovered with in my book, I'll play no work is there were also a bunch of con artist comedies. Right, produced by the Federal oh, Theater Project. And it leads to, again, what's work? What do we emphasize with work? And who's heroic in this regard, right? What is What do the oh, appearance man, these Connors plays say about us, right, as a society? <laughs> and so that leads us to The Milky Way, writ- written by two Star Trek characters. <laughs> so I want, I want to preempt this by saying, there are a lot of characters whose names who, who have initials S or M in this play, and I don't know why. So I will go as slowly as I can and as quickly as I can. I might I might have to cut some names here because it like even in summarizing this, like I ha- I would get confused at certain points as who is to who. So you know, all right. So it's the mid 1930s. There is a 
the middleweight champion, boxing champion of the world. His name is Speed McFarlane. He's training and he has a giant black eye and he's hungover. He can't remember how he got the black eye. Doesn't remember anything about the night before. A milkman named Burley Sullivan knocks on his door. Meek, scrawny milkman. And he asks the champion, how you doing? And the champion is like, what are you talking about? And apparently the night before, the boxing champion had hit on the milkman's wife. Or excuse me, milkman's sister, excuse me, not wife. Oh. And there was a scuffle and accidentally Burley Sullivan hit uh, Speed McFarland, the champion, knocked him out. Total accident. <laughs> I love it. So the press gets word of this. The champion has been knocked out by a milkman. The milkman's, what's his name? Uh, manager, a guy named Sloan, the manager, sees an opportunity. So he says, no, I have, he hasn't been knocked out by a milkman. It's the next middleweight champion that I've discovered. And so what, he, the, what the manager decides to do is send Burley Sullivan, the milkman, on a national tour in these staged boxing matches. Oh, so that he builds the reputation of being a legitimate contender for the middleweight championship of the world. The great white hype. The yes. Great white hype. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so we get a sense. We never actually, I, well, we'll see one of the boxing matches on, on stage, but we hear from radio accounts, from newspaper reports of how the press is covering Burley Sullivan, the find of the century, the scrawny milkman. They don't realize these fights are staged, but <laughs> they buy hook, line, and sinker into this story, right? And like the people and the press and everybody is is on board with it. They're totally on board with this, and there's no critical mm-hmm. response to it whatsoever, right? So they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, yeah, like this. The, he's the find of the century. There's some great lines in the play. Uh, one of the reporters asked Burley Sullivan if he's related to is it John Sullivan, the great boxer? And he's like, Who's that? I have no idea. I have no idea who that is. And uh! Gabby Sloan manages like, no, he, he's joking. He's joking. <laughs> and so what happens is they're going to set up a championship match between Speed McFarland, the previous champion, or the champion still, and mm-hmm. Burley Sullivan, the milkman. Gabby Sloan's perspective is for the milkman to take a dive. Right. Or actually like get punched right. once or twice. And so he gets knocked out and the championship remains with with his um, uh, client. With his star. Yeah. With his star. That's not what happened. Hilarity ensues. Mm-hmm. Sullivan accidentally catches his rival on the chin, knocking McFarland unconscious. <laughs> and Gabby Sloan like runs to the ring and is chasing him. He's ruined his plant. They've all bet on McFarland to win. Oh yeah. They've lost. So they're sitting around like moping. They're going to go to the bread line because they've lost all their money. And a deus ex machina kind of moment, uh, Burley Sullivan comes back and says, I bet on myself and won a huge amount of money. Uh, he decides to buy the dairy that he'd been working at and saves the day. Right. Uh. And so I, it's a really hokey play. I know it's been revived a couple times here and there. If you're interested, there is a film version of it uh, starring Harold Lloyd from the mid, I think, 1936. It was on the Criterion Collection uh, streaming for a while. Um, huh. It's not a great film, but it's it's kind of enjoyable uh, in, its own, in its own way. 
but it's the adaptation of something that was commissioned by the Federal Theater Project. Yes. So let me ask you this. Was it written for the Federal Theater Project or was it chosen to be part of the Federal Theater Project? It was Project? chosen to be part of the Federal Theater Project. It was okay. written by these two guys. Um, I think it was originally called the Cheese Champion or something something like that. <laughs> um, I think it's a better title, actually, to be totally honest. But that's, that's a great title. That's a great title. I know. A Cheese Champion to a Milky Way. Uh, you're you're crossing adult film lines at that point, oh, but oh god, you are! <laughs> oh my god, that's true. But anyway, there's something about these two that there is a Deus Ex in in each one of them, mm-hmm. right? That's true. Yeah, uh, which is very interesting to me. In that, that is something that sometimes it works really, really well. Yeah, I mean, for. For my listeners and fellow theater history buffs, it was an, a device used in Greek theater mm-hmm. when a god would come down and right all the wrongs. You know, god from the machine. And the machine was the mechany, the thing that would lift him over the wall. Mm-hmm. And you're like, ooh, the god is descending <laughs> on a platform that just was raised over. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. But... But yeah, the God would come down and set everything right and then, you know, take the bad people away that were still there or whatever. And now it has become such a thing that, oh, what was it? I think it was in uh, Tartuffe. They had a great one in Tartuffe where Mm -hmm. the king at the end of the thing has sent a letter completely, uh, you know, saving the day. And and I have a friend who teaches creative writing Mm -hmm. and he flat out just tells his students, don't ever use a deus ex machina. (laughs) Just don't, because if you have written yourself into a place where you can't get out of it, then you haven't written a good thing. Right. You know, right. <laughs> but at the same time, I think people enjoy that. You know, a lot of my acting career has been in improv mm-hmm. and uh, it's so fun to set the stakes to a point where you have created a situation that the audience watching is going, Oh, they're never going to get out of this. Mm -hmm. And when you actually do, they like cheer, like they're at a a super bowl. Right. You know? Right. But it's that Deus ex that you're like, okay, if we get to that point, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. I did one years and years ago where we did a long form 30 minute thing where, uh, we asked, okay, what's a, what's a headline for the news? And somebody said the Mars Rover. And so we're like, oh, okay, that'll work. And we talked about the Mars Rover for a while. And then it became this plot where Russian scientists wanted to take over NASA and infiltrate it from the inside. And it's the cheapest thing I've ever done in improv, Paul, but it worked so dang well. Early on, one character I played was like the head Russian scientist spy. So I had this thick Russian accent. And so the person on stage with me now had to adopt one. And then anytime somebody would walk past, we'd have to like just kind of button up and be like, yeah, so how about them Dodgers? You know, and uh, (laughs) just totally fake it out. At the end of the thing. I'm on stage. I realize we're coming to the end of a 30 minutes and, and we should be winding up real soon. I have convinced all of the American astronauts to get on a shuttle and they're going to go to Mars. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they, the hatch door closes, 
I put my hand under my chin and act like I'm whipping off a mask. And I look at the other person on stage with me, you know, just a second ago, we're like, well, bye, have fun. Uh, Go ahead and get me a moon rock. When you get there, they all leave. I whip off the mask. I go, Dimitri, we have done it. And the house just exploded. It was the cheapest thing I've ever done. And it worked so damn well. So there's nothing wrong with cheap, right? At certain points, like it, like, like if it if it works, it works, right? And yeah. you know, yeah, I, I yeah, I have I have colleagues that do the same thing, like you know, say never teach or never use a Deus Ex Machina moment. But if you start breaking it down, like I point out to students when I teach, because and um, I teach three penny opera every now and then, and that has a Deus Ex Machina moment, and I have to explain what it is, and and I'll say the one they're always familiar with, I'm like. I think of Jurassic Park, right? They're all chased by the, the, they're not, okay, science nerd. They're not really raptors, the Dionysus, but like they're being, you know, the, and all of a sudden the T-Rex comes out of nowhere and you're like, whoa, but it's like, it's a great moment. But you start thinking about like, well, how do they not hear it coming? Like, yeah. <laughs> remember that whole scene where it's like thudding in the mm-hmm. water in mm-hmm. the glasses dropping? Nobody caught that because the Dionysus, uh, pair was screaming at them right that had to be it yeah but, yeah uh, sure yeah and they're like what hole did it go in that was big enough for it that nobody knew was there? okay somebody left the garage door open i guess huh you, you gotta you gotta keep <laughs> raccoons and t-rexes out you know especially the holiday season <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna dig through your trash that's an interesting point you bring up with that one though because it redeemed our favorite character it's true. You know, we saw that thing kill people and and eat innocent things all over the place. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. End of the show, it becomes the hero. Mm-hmm. It's the face turn, you know, of the of the T-Rex, yeah. right? But but that's interesting that that was such a thing. But you know, when we talk about it, we think about this was something of the aim of the Federal Theater Project. Mm-hmm. You wanted a free, uncensored adult theater. That's what they said. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, oh, man, this makes me admire the Federal Theater Project even more. Not only were they trying to have a slate of shows that taught about important social issues, but they're also like, yeah, we'll throw in some custard pies every Mm -hmm. Mm now. You know, I mean, this is an impossibly ridiculous show. We've we've stirred up the fervor of the boxing world. And end of the day, it didn't go the way we wanted it to. But the little guy hero, Mm -hmm. the little guy hero won the day Mm -hmm. and the corrupt, awful people. Remember, the champ got drunk and flirted with the milkman's sister. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we're like, he's already a bad guy in our eyes, but he's the world champ Mm -hmm. gets totally knocked out. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, hey, does that do anything but give people hope in a terrible time for me? what I think is interesting about this play is like, it's ludicrousness, as you said, right. It, it yeah. doesn't seem, it doesn't seem plausible, but then you start thinking like, well, boxing is full of the history of like dives. Right. And people suspecting oh, it's yeah. not on the up and up well, yeah. in my book. I have, uh, Oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, the basis for raging bull. Um, it'll come to me later, but yeah, uh, he he gets you know he he's in a staged fight in Madison Square Garden. Uh, Jake Lamada, 
1947. Jake LaMotta, yeah, okay. And he does a bad job of selling the dive, right? And people are pissed uh, and they're booing. And he's like, he's like, I'm surprised Actors Equity didn't didn't pick of the joint because I was really bad that night, right? Because so like the performance, right? <laughs> performance works. And yeah, like the mythology of the playoff in the book, I connect to pro wrestling, right? Pro wrestling is starting to become mm-hmm. really popular in the thirties as we understand it now, not like yep. old time, like guys actually wrestling for like three hours, but you know, where there's, there's the spectacle of it and bad guys and good guys. And, and, but people knowing, I think it's a mistake about what people think of wrestling is like, people have always known it's not on the up and up, but yeah, right. Right. But like people like they like the performance. They like playing that role of, you know, there's the bad guy. I'm going to boo him, even though I know he's friends with the good guy backstage. Right. Like we, right. we play right. our parts. And mm-hmm. I think like part of the charm of this con is that, yeah, like there's the hope of the little guy is going to win. Right. And we don't care about the reality. We like the story. Right. And yes. we know yes. we're being hustled in this because he doesn't look like a legitimate contender. You know, it's interesting in the film version with Harold Lloyd and then all the productions I saw, the FTP with like the photographs of the actors, basically they're they're mimicking what, what Harold Lloyd looks like in the film. And so Harold Lloyd always had a persona of the nice guy, but also kind of scrawny. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is the same thing here. And so we're like, yeah, okay, sure. I'm going to buy it. But I like that. Right. I like the little guy winning. Right. I need that at a time of the depression. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, that, that's kind of what I was alluding to. It's like everything outside is awful. I'm in that guy's same spot. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to be paid 10 cents an hour mm-hmm. to carry milk all around. Now I'm only being paid five cents an hour because depression, mm-hmm. but the job still got to be done. I guess, I guess I still got work. Yeah. I mean, that's why Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was such a popular show for so long. People were like, I would like to know what a 100-foot yacht seems like. And did I come from similar circumstances as this person? Maybe I did. Maybe that 100-foot yacht is in my future. And there's like, yeah, but like, we love the fantasy. I do think with this play, though, there is like a little darkness to it because of how well the con works. yeah. And how vast and overreaching it yes. is. Like it goes so deep. Yeah. And it's and it's the difference between like the audience being in on the joke, right? Versus, well, the institutions that are supposed to protect against this are in on the joke, right? That they're right, not right. being critical of what of what they're seeing. There's a moment in the play too where the boxing announcer that's you know announcing the, the match on the bout the bout on the radio is reading a script uh, for a very dubious sounding like health elixir, right? And treating <laughs> it like very serious. And so the play is also reminding us like the con is kind of prevalent in every aspect of our lives, right? And and there's Ooh. a good con, right? Where these characters hold a hustle. They're basically pro wrestlers, right? They get a bunch of money. They retire. Everybody's happy. But there's also a danger there too. Yeah. Right. Like where, where is that line? Right. This is a good con, but there are plenty of bad cons out there. And I think audiences again, right. They want the pie fights, but here's a play that's leaning more to the pie fight, but also reminding you, Hey, remember the banks that really kind of screwed us over in the, Uh, they're still there. Remember the media that's not really doing their job. They're still there. 
it leaves you happy, but it's like you hear a song that like has a really great tempo mm. and a really great beat. It sticks with you and you're like, oh, that's a great song. And then you look at the lyrics, you're like, oh, oh boy, this is a really sad song. Um, we were actually yeah. thinking of my wife. I'm going to pull up my Spotify really quickly because I want to get the name of the song correct. Okay. We were watching a show the other night. Uh, it Never Rains in Southern California by Albert Hammond. A really great song it was in the show. And then she pulled up the lyrics and like, oh, my God, this is a really sad, depressing song. <laughs> and uh, so when you go to Target, listen to the song on Spotify. See, we're getting we're getting we're getting sponsors at this point. So this That's OK. That yeah. Works. Yeah. I, I had a good rap. I can say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> as I, I think that's that what's interesting about this play and a lot of the plays. Right. There is the comedy. There is the lightheartedness. But in dealing with work, mm -hmm. something that is very serious during the depression, they're finding ways to really have us think about our relationship to work and the dangers of work, wow. and the dangers of society. Right, right. Don't just fall into the system. Understand what the system is so you can avoid any unpleasantness in the future. To, to kind of wrap this all up, to that point. I had a movie that I went and saw and I really enjoyed, but it haunted me later. And this was The Big Short mm -hmm. with Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling. And it was all about the 2008 housing bubble crisis. Mm -hmm. And you sit in there and you think like by the end of the show, you actually do know a lot more about the stock exchange than you actually do mm -hmm. because they do a really great job of, of kind of describing the processes and the, the glossary of terms that go along with it. But then at the end, it's by these guys who are really well known for being comedic. A lot of the time, mm -hmm. you know, Adam McKay who directed anchorman comes out with this movie that at the end of it, they go, so who really got punished for this thing? Mm -hmm. Nobody. And the systems are still in place to do it again. Mm -hmm. And they don't care yeah. about you. Mm -hmm. They don't care about you or your well-being. They just want to know if they can get a million of you suckers out there to steal all of the money that you have just so they can have it. Mm -hmm. They don't care of what happens to you. And it's like, it's stuck with me so hard for days. And I'm like, ah, I feel used. Yes. And yes. It's, it's like the, the stories coming out now of uh, news stories from earlier this year of like these states of organized retail theft, right. Happening across the country. And now, <laughs> and now like there's now this, in the next round of journalism is like, well, actually mm, that might not be the case. Right. <laughs> and and you feel the same thing like wait a second like have i been have i been conned have i been yeah. like swindled like in all these different different capacities it's not just somebody doing a three card money scam no it's like the the smallest things and the biggest things and right you know i think for depression audiences sure right like another play i write about in the book is a, a very different but you know it ends way more cynically about the banking industry. And it, it basically is saying, right, what has changed? Yeah. You know, what has changed in 10 years? Not to like make, not to be really <sighs> simplistic, but like, you know, we, 
Every no, time there's you're another, right. Another banking bailout or another, you know, scandal with this financial house or this organization and it leaves you depressed. And perhaps that's the desired effect. Mm -hmm. I, I talk about it on the show a lot about what it means to be a classic play. And to me, a play that is classic, it means it has endured all of the changes of time and it continues to be relevant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I hate that. <laughs> because sometimes the most important plays we've ever heard about some terrible thing about humanity that we need to fix and year after year after year it's produced and we all walk away going man wasn't that something and nothing changes yeah and and, and i mean it's not that easy it's obviously not that easy to just be like hey we can change this right now i mean it it obviously is something that takes a lot of different mechanisms to actually get to that desired effect but it's also something that uh, might feel bigger than we are yeah but also just kind of a reminder of you know don't be such a sucker mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>. mm -hmm. <laughs> it's you know? yeah yeah i had i had a conversation with someone recently where they, they were complaining about about something and to me it was a very obvious swindle and, and you just want to say like, don't be a sucker right in, in yeah. that circumstance that's controllable the bigger stuff that's a harder that's a harder question and yeah you know it yeah and it's like why the end of Macbeth always has relevance right like the cycle of violence right. continues right and it's yeah and that's great and depressing at the same time right and, yeah Ooh. but hey Kudos to the Federal Theater Project for wanting to bring those things to light and say, hey, we're bringing you something relevant. And sometimes they're kind of funny. Mm -hmm. And you can attend for free or no, little to no cost. Oh, like my favorite thing. Oh, that, about that whole thing. Like, just come, come enrich your lives a little bit because you're you're eating shoe leather water right now. <laughs> and and you probably need a little lightness in your life. <laughs> you have dandelion salad and shoe leather soup. Yeah. <laughs> and so come see this horrendous Puritan try to damage these actors who mm -hmm. all go, nope, I'm following you. Yep, yep that's mm -hmm. fine. <laughs> and a boxing swindle. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, my word. Well, you Menadites, it might be time for any of you to revive either of these plays. Man, it actually does sound pretty fun to think about putting together a boxing parody, especially with those names. But either of these plays would be amazing to see. And as I said before, these are just two of the plays in Paul's book, and he told me that there are even more surprises in store when you read the book. So I implore you to support Paul and buy his book, All Play, No Work, wherever you get your books. Again, a link is in the show notes. And I want to thank Paul for appearing on the show, and I'm sure he will again. But for now, I'll sign off. This has been your host, Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, bringing this episode of Euripides Humanities to an end. Another episode will be in your ears in two weeks, and I'll see you at intermission. Ooh. Ooh.